Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Blockhead. Thanks for stopping by. As promised, today we have Lex Fajardo, Senior Comics Editor at Schultz Studio in Santa Rosa, California, as well as a terrific cartoonist in his own right, creator of the graphic novel series Kid Beowulf, published by Andrews McMeal, and available everywhere that good books are sold. This is a conversation that I had been looking forward to for quite some time, and uh, it does not disappoint. Lex and I had lots to talk about, both of us deeply interested in Schultz and Peanuts and uh, everything Charlie Brown and Snoopy, as well as comics, comic strips in general. And so the conversation starts off talking about things that, well, talking about where we both grew up, which is Binghamton, New York, and... Uh, uh, some of the commonalities there, and it leads into a discussion about one of our local hometown heroes, Johnny Hart, the cartoonist and uh, creator of the BC comic strip, as well as Wizard of Id. And from there, it it heads deep into Schultz territory. Uh, the conversation was so in-depth, and, and once we got going, we got on a roll, we got really interested. The time flew by without either of us knowing how much time it slipped by, and we never got around to talking about Lex's own work, and we decided we'd save that uh, and for any ancillary issues uh, to come up uh, for another episode, which we will record very shortly. But this conversation was a real pleasure, a real pleasure. Lex is a terrific guy, terrific cartoonist, and uh, really, as you'll see, you know, just it really, it's a wonderful conversation. So without further ado, uh, let's get right to it, okay? Um, Lex Fajardo and myself in conversation. Here we go. Welcome, Lex, to Blockhead. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to being a guest and i have really enjoyed the last um batch of of interviews that you've that you've had actually i guess the whole the whole lot of them um, <laughs> and it's been really fun well thank you uh thanks a lot it's a lot of fun to do and it's a lot of fun to talk to other cartoonists about somebody they love and work they love and everybody you know who's anybody working in comics loves you know charles schultz and peanuts one way or another i don't know actually there are people out there who who don't, I suppose, but um, I don't associate with them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't hang out with those guys. Uh, anyway, it's great to have you here because you are senior editor at the Schultz Studio, as well as a great cartoonist on your own with Kid Beowulf. Uh, so we have lots to... Plus, unbeknownst to the audience, uh, we both grew up in the same region of the country. Matter of fact, within 20 miles probably of each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You're in upstate Binghamton, New, New York. York. Yeah, Binghamton, New York. Yeah, you're from the Vestal side, and uh, yeah, yeah, my my dad. Uh, we we migrated there from the Midwest when I was um, just becoming a sophomore in high school. And my father's a, a professor, so he he taught at the at the at SUNY where he at still SUNY. teaches. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and um, and so yeah, when I when I got to to Binghamton, um, it was uh uh well, well just i mean it it has a very midwestern feel so that wasn't so much of a of a hard shift but it was um uh it was one of those you know you're 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 moving into a whole new place and you have to find your your niche and and for me in high school it was the art room and i found great friends there and and uh and um but i spent actually more time i think going back and forth to binghamton from where i am now and all the other parts of my life um and uh so yeah, it is it is home still. That's where my folks uh -huh. are. That's where my um, extended family is, and and so it's always nice to to go back and visit and um, and see what new strip mall has been built in my absence. <laughs> 
Yeah, the Vestal Parkway. Well, uh, okay, so for people who, who don't live in this region, uh, which is, I actually don't know if I have any listeners from, from this uh, this town, but um, for people who don't know, the Vestal Parkway, where SUNY uh, Binghamton, or Binghamton University now is located, is uh, basically a land of strip malls. And um, and it's I grew up here in the 60s when it was um, just beginning, really. And now it's, it's – uh, and it's still not as – overloaded with strip malls is lots of places but um yeah there every every time you turn around it seems like there's another one right right it's the fate of america as it were sadly yes yeah i know i know and and uh at one point you wonder when we're going to max out of box stores <laughs> right right you know anyway anyway um so you know the interesting thing about the place we grew up which, you know, the Binghamton area, I grew up in Endicott across the river from Vestal, although the first 10 years of my life were, were in the Vestal school district because we lived in a little development called Tioga Terrace and, uh, which, um, was in that school district. So I was going to go to Vestal, but, um, anyway, 1970, my folks moved across the river which was a big deal. Um, I thought across the river when I was looking from the development we were in across the river, I thought that was like Europe when I was growing up. <laughs> really? You could, you could see across the river and I thought, well, over there, that's Germany and you know, world war two is going on over there. And as kids, you know, we really thought that stuff. But anyway, um, uh, interesting thing about growing up here is it is also the home of Johnny Hart, uh, of BC yeah. fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was—I don't know about for you, but he was, you know, an icon when I was growing up. And uh, he seems to have had uh, progeny in terms of uh, cartoonists here in this area. It seems like it grows cartoonists because there's you, uh, there's me, um, there's a guy by the name of Jason Little who does Shutterbug. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Jason. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. He's from Binghamton. Um, I know there, and his name escapes me. He draws Marvel, those tiny Marvel characters. Oh, Chris Giarusso. Chris is great. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay, yeah. he's from here too. And who knows, you know, who I don't know of who comes from here. But it seems like there's a whole, you know, garden full of little cartoonists who've grown up around here. Yeah, I think it could be the um, the weather. It's uh, Binghamton is one of the, it's in the like top 10 <laughs> rainy cities. Uh, yep. And so all you can do is stay home and draw. I know. That's exactly it, right? I, yeah. I'm, and my wife continually blames me for this. <laughs> we, it's a, she, she looks at me and says, oh, my God, you know, how, how did you drag me to this place? Where, <laughs> right. She's a gardener and she loves to be outside all the time. And I can't blame her because it – but at the same time, you know, it, as the winter extends, right, uh, deeper and deeper into May <laughs> as it did this year, um, she gets more and more upset. And I'm, I'm just sitting there drawing away, you know, yeah. feeling – it's it's okay. I just the rhythm drawing. of the rain on the roof, just yep. you know, as you draw, it's kind of nice. But it, it it can it can get a little tiresome when it's mm. June and it's still raining. Um, yeah. Let me yeah. ask you this though. So growing up uh, in Endicott and and that area of New York in in the '60s when you were, which was kind of the heyday of, well, a lot of a lot of guys Schultz um, and then obviously Johnny Hart was yeah. was. Did you feel that presence? Was Johnny Hart like part of the city in the sense of like celebrity cartoonist? What was the, how was he perceived back then? Oh yeah. He was, he was definitely, uh, definitely seen as a celebrity. Um, and because, you know, we had two celebrities really from Binghamton. We had Rod Serling. Oh, right. We had Johnny Hart. And, uh, we also had Richard Deacon who nobody remembers. Richard Deacon, uh, was Mel Cooley on the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful actor and a great, great role, although, you know, didn't really use him to his fullest, but nevertheless, he did get to dance on that show, which was cool. But Johnny Hart was, um, yeah, by the time I was 10, you know, I knew who Johnny Hart was. I think I knew of who he was before then. I was born in 1960. So by 1970, I was collecting comic strip collections and I had a collection. I still have it. As a matter of fact, my aunt gave me. And it's a BC collection of a whole host of comic strips. And this is all pre, you know, I think, unfortunately, among a lot of cartoonists today, Johnny Hart is remembered for his evangelical turn in the Mm -hmm. 1990s. But prior to that, Johnny Hart was a really witty wordsmith and uh, a very funny cartoonist. And he did a lot of puns and things that were really clever in his cartoons. His drawings are great. 
His drawings really were great. Great yeah. draftsman. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Terrific. Very loose. Very free. He was a very talented cartoonist, and uh, and and uh, you know of the period, one of the greats. I mean, mm-hmm. in um, Peanuts Treasury, I think he writes Peanuts Treasury or one of those books from the '60s, early '70s. He he wrote the introduction for Charles Schultz at Charles Schultz. Oh, wow. And I think Schultz wrote the, you know, uh, um, returned the favor on one of the hard books. So if you were of the mind to be reading those books, and I was, uh, you knew of the two of them and you knew of their relationship and of their respect for one another. So by the time I was 10, 11, 12, you know, I, I knew I was heading in the direction of wanting to draw comics and comic strips were uh, really, you know, I loved Peanuts and loved BC, um, BC primarily through the books that my aunt got me in from the notoriety that Hart had. So we were, you know, sort of in awe of him and, uh, as well, I was in awe of him. I didn't know any other cartoonists, you know, but even my friends who weren't, you know, knew who he was. And so I remember, you know, there's a, there's of course, there's a golf tournament that happens here. Right, the BC Open. I was going to ask, I wondered if, if, if he and Schultz or if he invited Schultz ever to that. You know, uh, I wonder about that, too, because um, as far as I know, you know, in the 70s anyway, when it first started, and it was a really big deal. Johnny Hart would show up to play and he would often play around with other golfers. And I went to see him play one time just to see Johnny Hart. My my buddy across the street had tickets through his dad. His dad was my uh, his dad was uh, superintendent of schools in the, in Endicott. And so, you know, he got complimentary passes, which he gave to us. And so we went to see these guys play one day. It was the only time I've ever been to the BC open. And, uh, and Johnny Hart, for those who don't know, Johnny Hart, uh, had gone through, um, you know, alcoholism. So he had a drinking problem. And when I saw Johnny Hart play golf, he and his buddies, whoever was playing with him, uh, were, uh, you know, three sheets to the wind, so to speak, oh, really? okay. having a great time and not obnoxious or anything, but they were pretty silly. Uh, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the courage then to go up and talk to him, but at least I got to see him play, uh, for a while, but you know, he conquered, he got over alcoholism and, uh, you know, the whole bit. And that's when he became evangelical, uh, whatever it takes to get you through the disease, you know? And, right, right. Uh, and a lot of people find God through that. And uh, um, although I'm not a believer, I don't begrudge anybody what it takes to, you know, uh, find their way out of that morass because right. I've seen what it can do. But um, anyway. Uh, well, you know, the other thing I was going to say is, is so the, I think the, the BC Open was still happening when I had moved in there in the 90s. And it was sort of probably at the tail end. But my recollection of it was that he would invite other cartoonists to yeah. it. So there was sort of two components. There was the um, the pro golfers, and then you had the, yeah. the pro am, which which comprised of. And I remember going one year, um, and I think Mike Peters was was there. Oh, really? Grimm and um, Jim uh, Davis and oh, sort of the luminaries of the of the of the you know of that late '90s era, um, uh, or at least you know his pals and whatnot. Um, oh, cool. so I'm going to have to look that up cause I, I'd be fascinated to know if, cause Schultz was a great golfer. And oh yeah. Golfing. So yeah. it'd be interesting if he ever made his way out, out, yeah. out there. You know, I, 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 gosh, you know, that's one of those things that I can only dream about. You know, I wish if that indeed happened, I don't know whether I'd regret not being here to have seen it, you know, right. <laughs> from knowing, but it would be very cool to learn that that was indeed the case. But I don't know that Schultz ever made his way. I mean, this is kind of a bit of a throw from New York City. I don't know if he would have ever come out this far, but who knows, you know, that right. would have been cool. Because you're right, Schultz was a very serious golfer. And uh, uh, although Johnny Hart, I don't think Johnny Hart was a serious golfer. I don't think he took it, you know, he wasn't one of those guys who went out playing all the time. I think he just played as a goof. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. yeah. But so, uh, Johnny Hart's also interesting if we can, if I'm just thinking about the difference between him and and Schultz, I mean their their art style is mm-hmm. similar in in that it's it's um, just great rich black line on on paper yeah. and, and fun looking characters. But yeah. uh, I think, may correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I've read of Johnny Hart, he was sort of of the the style of cartoonist where he sort of had gag men to help him write the strip, and he would. <laughs> He had sort of a, a cadre of, of 
uh, of assistance. Whereas for Schultz, it was very much sort of the auteur kind of, this is my baby and oh, yeah. I'm the only person writing it. I don't know. Am I, am I right? Yes, you're right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been reading Celebrating Peanuts 65 years, and I've, I've been going oh, yeah. through reading some of those quotes. And that was among the first the, book that I put together. I'm glad you're reading man, it. And it's fantastic. I just love it. I, I just love it. And, and I, I learn, I've learned a lot just reading the quotes interspersed with the images, with the comics. It's great. And, uh, and you know, taken out of context, the 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 comments that Schultz makes throughout are, are very revealing in and of themselves. And somewhere along the line, he says he was, you know, that United when they first, you know, signed him on, they didn't know they had a fanatic on their hands. Right. And, you know, and I never thought of him as a fanatic, but really, I guess he was, you know, in the sense that this is my baby. I control everything. And, yeah. uh, Hart wasn't like that. He was from that, that, you know, that school of cartoonists, that professional school, that was uh, sure, you know, when you've got a lot of work to do, you hire out assistants and you hire gag men. And and uh, I think he was chastised later on for something cartoonists probably routinely do now uh, was he would clip old drawings and paste them into new cartoons with new text, you know. Oh, wow. Uh, Interesting. Just, I, think I, I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah, just to meet deadlines. And uh, I think um, – he had, there was a guy, his best buddy was a guy by the last name of DiCaprio. And I can't remember. Yes. First. Jack DiCaprio. Jack I DiCaprio. Had a, so just interject because, because that's how my connection to heart, which is, which is, uh, very tenuous at best. But I, when I was doing co- comics and cartoons in high school, I would do them for the paper and, mm-hmm. and, um, through some person knowing another person, I don't know, but somehow they got to Jack DiCaprio, who was, was his heart's uh, writing partner, uh-huh. and I think this was this is maybe when I was back out of college and pursuing trying to do a syndicated strip full time, and and um, so I sent a batch and to get some some feedback from from Johnny Hart through Jack DiCaprio, and he was really nice, gracious guy. Both of them really, um, in retrospect, took a uh, a nice chunk out of their their data just communicate with a young cartoonist mm-hmm. and um yeah and i got a, a letter back from from johnny hart and and um it was uh it was definitely the, the tone of it was uh an older generation cartoonist not a fan of the new crop of cartooning that sort of is infiltrating huh. and he sort of likened my whatever strip that i was doing at the time as part of that kind of uh really new ilk yeah because because at the time i wasn't a very good I would say my, my drawing was, was just trying to figure itself out. And so I was doing a strip called Plato's Republic at the time, which was kind of a hybrid of Doonesbury and Pogo. So there were political themes um, dressed up with animal characters. And um, there wasn't a great through line in terms of like the world building. It, it very much had like a Bloom County, uh-huh. Doonesbury uh, vibe to it. But um and I remember getting this letter back from him, which was, uh, which was at certain points encouraging, just because you know here's somebody who likes cartooning, and um, so you want to encourage that. But at the same time, it was like uh, you need to learn to draw, <laughs> and uh-huh. because the likes of of this isn't going to get syndicated. And he sort of, you know, railed against. I think then I think Dilbert had just gotten. Uh-huh you know, um, syndicated and, and there was like a whole spate of, of comics in the nineties where the, you could tell the drawing just wasn't as good as Schultz and, and Hart and Watterson at the time where, where there's, um, a clear draftsmanship to it. And it was, and, and, um, and I think so mine, he was sort of putting mine in that bucket. Um, and I think when I got the letter at the time, I was like, who's this guy? I don't care. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to keep drawing. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, years later, when I reread the letter, I I read between the lines and I see what he's saying. It's like, OK, I have to he's not saying not to cartoon. He's just saying to to devote time to learning the craft and getting really yeah. good at, it, you know, and yeah. I appreciate that. Well, you know, um, that's really that's fascinating. 
that's really fascinating. I mean, that sounds like a really cool letter to have. And, um, it, you know, it's also interesting historically, just from the point of view of, of one generation of cartoonists looking at the next generation of cartoonists. And definitely, you know, we're talking about a big sea change between, uh, the fifties cartoonists like Schultz and, and Johnny Hart and, uh, Jules Pfeiffer and people like that. Well, not so much Jules Pfeiffer, but Mort Walker, you know, mm-hmm. people who adhered to, uh, I think a set of ideals and, that were rooted in, uh, you know, the great heyday of, of the comic strip in the thirties and the forties and the draftsmanship that was on display back then. Plus, you know, that kind of, um, uh, what, what do you call it? That kind of, uh, uh, very casual approach to drawing that developed in the late forties, fifties, that approach to cartooning that appeared to be very minimal and simple, like you see in Schultz and in Hart, but was in fact informed by great control. Oh and, yeah. You know, great, um, feeling for line and, and that, that's something, and I can understand that because again, here, here I am sitting here at the, you know, just uh, approaching, you know, uh, my elder years and looking back and sometimes I, and particularly as a, as a teacher in an art department, um, oftentimes, you know, I, I look around and I say, well, you know, a lot of these kids just can't draw. And I can see that in a lot of comics that one way or the other find their way onto the internet and have, you know, 50,000 followers, you know, right. Good, right. It, it's, it's, um, in some, sometimes I almost feel as though good drawing gets in the way of accessibility because it's another thing people have to think about. And, um, and they don't, and as they're scrolling through Instagram, they don't really want to think, they just want to see. And if it's a comic strip, sometimes really good drawing can get in the way of, you know, perhaps, uh, and I'm just like, this is just coming off my tongue. I have no idea, <laughs> you know? Um, but immediacy of a joke i don't know but well there yeah i think there's definitely um it's a balancing act because when i think of what you're saying about sort of that old guard uh looking at the new guard like when i think of those great artists of that of that time there's you know the the really good cartoonists um they strip away you know Mm -hmm. they you sort of just get to the gesture of the pose or the, the meat of the, of the, of the joke and the, and the perfect phrasing. And there's like, uh, there's this, you're kind of whittling down to the core of, of the gag. And I think that's what Hart and Schultz and, um, you know, that, that generation <clears throat> was really good at doing. Um, yeah. and especially in the drawing because, and you can see it, you know, you can see it in, in even Schultz's work where that, that first couple years, I was sort of just think about it like from the point of view, like as a young cartoonist, like he's just figuring out the landscape, like, okay, the, the, the canvas that I have to work with these four panels, yeah. how big are my characters going to be? And then how much can I actually fill yeah. in there? And it's interesting. Like I think 50 to 51 or two, it's pretty sparse. And then of course, when he's, when he's given a Sunday, yeah. uh, he's really starts to fill in the page. And then for the next couple of years, it really gets, jam-packed with detail and i always sort of liken that to like oh he's like finding his sea legs like he's and and uh he's excited about drawing and he can fill this space and he's getting a better handle on his characters and then of course that get that landscape gets really crowded you know you see the curtains and you see like the eames chairs in the backgrounds and the Mm -hmm. tinker tot toys and then and then it starts to strip away again and he starts to like find exactly the amount of of data that he needs to put in that that panel that you as a reader need to get to know to, to understand what charlie brown and lucy and the gag is all about Absolutely. and it's just it's just fascinating to, to look at his work and i think most cartoonists work if, if you if you look at it chronologically you just sort of see them at least in strip cartooning um them figuring out those questions for themselves and then and then how to efficiently put forth the comic that they want to do well, absolutely. I, I think you've really described the, the arc of Schultz's uh, artistic or visual development really well. And and it's fascinating to me to for the same reasons to, to see the process that he goes through and sort of I think one of the things he does is he sits back and he begins to think about, well, how is the reader going to experience this? How is this going to print? Um, what's it going to look like in the newspaper right. against other comic strips? And I, and I'm wondering as you're talking, was he, 
you know, did he have a slew of papers, a cadre of papers from around the country that took peanuts and assembled it differently and looked at them and sort of, you know, over time develop an understanding of what's the median, what's the best, you know, um, place to be visually in terms of the amount of detail, uh, you know, for all of these variations in terms of the way they print the strip or the, the varying quality of, of reproduction in those days on newsprint. Um, you know, clearly he was sensitive to that. And right. one of the things in celebrating peanuts that I, uh, I remember reading recently as I've gone through the book is, um, you know, his talking about, um, reproduction and, uh, talking about how, you know, peanuts was the smallest strip on the page and how yeah. he resented that. But I also think resenting that he accepted it and he, having accepted it, he learned how to work with it as best he could. And, and I think one of the things that in regard to what we were saying before is that particularly among younger cartoonists who don't have the experience, uh, is that they are not, um, they, they sort of mistake the simplicity of cartoonists like Schultz and Hart and many who come later as a kind of insouciance, as a kind of, uh, you know, disregard for drawing. It's right. almost like a, um, it's a you complete know, drawing, opposite. Yeah, and it's not. It's, it's really calculated and very, um, you know, thoughtful. And clearly, you know, in Hart's letter to you and in the things that Schultz says, this is something they've given a lot of thought to. It's not like, because when you look at some of those Schultz cartoons, uh, the Sundays in particular from the 50s, uh, and you look at those and the level of detail, uh, the, the deliberateness, uh, the quality of his line and, and all of the, you know, the furniture and the landscape, et cetera, he's clearly considering all of that. And he's also enjoying working with it. Right. And he's got the skill level. There's no doubt about it. He's got the skill level to, to, you know, fill it up as much as he wants to. He knows perspective. He knows how to deal with space. But as time goes on, he realizes that in order for this to work, you know, as effectively as possible, you know, I have to utilize the tools I have to the best possible advantage. And that means being aware of every element I'm using within the comic and eliminating those or editing away those that that get in the way. And sometimes... For example, the, there, there's a strip that strikes me of uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown golfing mm -hmm. uh, early on, where adults are seen for the first and only yeah. time. So weird. So weird. So isn't that weird? And he yeah. knew it was weird. He yeah. just, and again, from celebrating peanuts, there's a quote in there where he says, you know, he knew it was weird and it was a mistake and he looks back on it and he wishes he never did it, but Hey, you know, he had to try it. And, yeah. uh, but he realized that's an element he doesn't need and he didn't need all of the, you know, nicely rendered detail that was throughout. He didn't need to be Walt Kelly. Right, uh, right. And maybe he well, didn't even have the space that Walt Kelly had on the page. The and that's sort of what I wonder is, like, when he was finally granted, like, in 52, the, the Sundays, if, like, he thought, wow, I can finally roll up my sleeves and show these guys, these other cartoonists out there, what I can do. Because, you know, I think, I don't know if he... Um, you know, I know he looked at the comics page all the time because he was very competitive, yes. and I'm, and he's always sort of seeing you know who won the day, so to speak, on the page. Um, so he's very aware of what his what his colleagues are creating. Um, and but and I know that early on, for for a couple of years, people just didn't know what the hell to make of Peanuts. It was no, it was not a out of the out of the gate success. It was a slow slow build. Um, and I I remember reading. The likes of Mort Walker and and um, you know Al Cap are like, what is this thing? I don't know what this this guy in California is doing, but this is not a comic strip. <laughs> and and so I'm sure he was kind of aware of that. You know, here's this this guy in the Midwest who's just drawn about kids in suburbia and with big heads and and these weird <laughs> gags and and it's not it's just it's just so very different um, that I think people forget that uh, and. Um, <laughs> It's lucky so the it's internet just, didn't exist then, you know, yeah, and internet exactly. trolls, because, you know, maybe it, it would have hurt him too much because, you know, this is the interesting thing. And I'm, I'm sorry I interrupted because uh, you were on, on a roll there. No, 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 no. Go on, yeah. But uh, the, the, the thing that I'm thinking about is, is that, you know, you, somebody as sensitive as Schultz was, 
might have, but also he, he was stubborn. That's the, you know, mm-hmm. he stuck to his guns. He had a vision and he followed his vision through. And it's interesting how he pointed the way to the future. He understood what was happening to the newspaper comic strip on the page. And he was working with that and towards that end. Um, you can see how somebody like Al Cap could look at the stuff who said disparaging things about peanuts and even, and made comic strips, you know, that were disparaging about right. peanuts. And, um, you can see how he, somebody of that ilk could not understand what Schultz was up to, uh, in, in doing that. And yeah, he, you know, he's really carving a path for himself that was, um, you know, very different really from that of his contemporaries in a lot of ways. Uh, and he's, he, you know, he's the demarcation point between the, when you think 20th century comics, it's, it's the adventure strips, um, of the, of the, you know, the, the Hearst papers in the, in the twenties and thirties that, that he grew up with reading and like wanting to emulate. And then, you know, they give him that, what they call the space saver strip. This, this kid who's a fanatic, who's like, this is all you're going to give me for postage stamps to draw in. And then, and, but as you say, he takes it, he runs with it. He makes it his own and he transforms the landscape. Whereas where from this point on, that's what comic strips look like. That's, that's the, the, the beat and the rhythm that he established yeah and and to um and so when you look at the the old adventure strips it's like wow this, this is what they used to do it's sort of yeah. it's fascinating because he's and i don't think he did it intentionally he was just you know he was, he was just working with what they gave him um but yeah he was so damn good that that <laughs> changed everything Absolutely. And, you know, uh, he certainly was, you know, so, so good. And he did, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned, you mentioned rhythm and beat and, um, and, you know, in terms of not only in terms of the artwork, but also in terms of, of the writing style, what was and what wasn't funny, what could be a joke and, and, uh, what could the, the reader could relate to and how rhythm played a part, you know, the rhythm of the words played a part in, in how Schultz's humor hit the reader uh you know there there's something to uh, there are nuances in his writing that i think say somebody like al cap wasn't didn't need to look for uh, because you know first of all the the space was different the times were different uh you know and, and al cap's illustration was very very different but right. schultz you know is is mining a territory where something as subtle as the rhythm of words uh, of language, you know, almost like a haiku, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, was very important in, in the translation of the humor of the strip. You had to be able to read Linus, you know, in in a certain way, you had to get into the rhythms of Schultz's language in a way. And I think that was very different for the times too. It's still very different actually, but I, well, it's, it's a character driven strip. That's the other thing is like, once he had a, got a handle on Linus and Charlie Brown and Snoopy, uh, he was writing from their point of view. And there was, that's the one thing I love about, you know, rereading his stuff is all those characters are so well developed and, uh, you know, you don't have to look at a quote to know that, oh, that's Lucy speaking, you know, it, um, or look at the, the drawing. I mean, you sort of just you can get from the from the phrasing that, you know, what the character is, is speaking. Um, and uh, and I don't know how many comic strips of the time were were so focused on on the characters. I feel like, you know, Beetle Bailey gags are kind of interchangeable. Sarge could be yeah. saying it. Beetle could be, uh, you know, high and lowest, those sort of things. And that's not to say that they're inferior although personally i think they are but um it's just a different kind of writing that he also brought to um to comic strips absolutely i'm using the word absolutely too much um but you know i again we're in accord we're we're we we're agreed you know i think that um i agree with you about the writing in regard to beetle bailey or high and lois or a whole host of other strips the nuances of character that Schultz develops, I think, are something entirely new for the comic strip page. I'm trying to think of other uh, comics where character is so, um, you know, developed, so thoroughly developed, and so has so much dimensionality 
from the fifties. And when you think about, you know, somebody like Beetle Bailey, he's an archetype, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but as a person, you don't really, there's no person there to really get to know. He's a, a vehicle for gags. Sarge is again, a kind of cardboard character. No, no disrespect to Mort Walker, who, you know, was, uh, again, one of those benchmark cartoonists and in a very different way, defined what would come after him in terms of what was possible for syndicated comics. He and Dick Brown and that school of comics. Right. Uh, but Schultz was very, very different. And this is why you can pick up a collection of Schultz and read Schultz and, and read it over and over and over and get something very that, that approaches prose, that approaches a novel in its depth of characterization and it, the depth of its subject matters. Whereas you can read Beetle Bailey, read one book in 1962, read another book in 1975, and it's not going to be all that much different. Right. And and you're not going to, you know, um, be engaged in, you know, the foibles of the characters because the gags are pretty much stock gags. And this is the same thing that's true of BC, really. Right. You know? I was going to say that because I can't think of a clear personality difference between Peter and, and you know, BC or, or, or any of the other characters. They're just there to deliver the gag of the day. And, yeah. and I suspect that's really the secret to the longevity of, of peanuts is like, you know, the, he's not thinking of a gag. He's thinking about this character in this situation and what would they do? And that spins out a storyline that can take, carry him for weeks. Absolutely. Uh, whereas these other guys, it's like, okay, what do we got for Wednesday? Come on, let's, let's Very, fill out a note card and, and get it to the syndicate. <laughs> you know, it's one yeah, of those. And, and that's why you could hire other people to work with you, you know, get, right. and you, you know, get gag writers to work with you. Cause you could take any gag then and apply it to these characters who are just sort of stock characters in a situation, whether it's okay. My character exists in the military, uh, camp swampy, or my characters exist in, you know, a prehistoric landscape, uh, you know, of the imagination and you can just take things and play with them and it doesn't really matter who the characters are i think that did set the table for a lot of what is acceptable in the world of syndication even today you know you think of something like garfield and and garfield uh successful it is it pretty much comes out of the mort walker yeah, uh, and and Johnny Hart school, you know the Dick Brown school, uh, and you know well, the thing that I've always felt with those strips is yeah they they deliver the gag every day, but there's really there's no real point in reading fifty years of of Hagar the Horrible, right? It right. doesn't go anywhere, and uh, as much as I enjoyed Dick Brown's drawing and and you know his son Chris Brown's drawing and illustration and stuff, and and I do find it humorous, I don't. You don't go anywhere. And and one of the things that I th- I've always missed in and always wanted to inject into whatever comics I was developing, but the ones that I read in particular is the feeling that this was going someplace, that there was a risk involved and that you didn't necessarily know what was going to happen to these characters. There was something of value at risk. And in, in Peanuts, you get that all the way through from 1950 all the way to the last strip. There, there is never a moment where you feel like, you know, it's, it, yeah, it settles into a pattern after a period of time. But at the same time, there is so much of the personal invested into it that, that transcends the idea of gag writing, you know, right. I mean, Schultz is and still it, writing gags, but they're as you said, personality driven. And there's some sense of always a, a feeling that there are consequences, uh, personal consequences, you know, whether it's Charlie Brown flying the kite and getting caught in the kite eating tree or whatnot, there's always a sense of something is invested here. Right. And what I, what I love is, is if you look at the arc of the 50 years of strips is, um, well, each, each decade, so to speak, has a different flavor so and 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 i think that's just sort of him growing as a human being and then growing with these characters so you can you can you know there's the that the heyday of the 60s where everything's just working on all cylinders and then the the fun um surrealness of the 70s and then yeah. it kind of gonna kind of like comes into like a you know uh maybe predictable place in the 80s but there's still really good stuff and then it moves into this kind of zen-like space in the 90s and it's just sort of like it's always different and his batting average was always really good like you know know. it's just amazing and um and the other thing i was just gonna you know say is is that um 
I love that he's commenting on himself. Uh, and you can only do that when you have 50 odd years of strips. Cause like there's, there's some stuff in the nineties where like the kiting tree gag of Charlie Brown that we've witnessed for 40 years before he's playing on that trope. He does it with the football gag. He does it with all these things that we kind of take for granted as readers, but he as a creator is playing with. And if you're a careful reader, you'll be rewarded with, with the gag. Like there's, I think in particular of the one <clears throat> where it's, I think the late nineties and it's a Sunday and Lucy's out there and she's doing the, the annual football gag and, and Charlie Brown's racing up to kick it. And then it, the, the, the moment is interrupted by rerun who comes in and says, Hey Lucy, you have a call, you know, you have to go in and get it. And so there's Lucy trying to instruct rerun. Okay, well, I'll go get the call, but when Charlie Brown comes back, um, you just got to make sure that you pull the football away before he kicks it. That's all you got to do. And so, <laughs> so we cut to Lucy answering the call, and then rerun walks in, and she's like, "Well, yeah, did you do it?" And rerun sort of says, "Well, you'll never know." And it's, you know, it's that sort of playing on 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 the trope of, mm-hmm. um, and then other moments with the kiting tree, and and he's and he's like, uh, now I don't know if he's if you know, he's looking back at his work. I get a sense that he really didn't review what had already been done, but clearly it's there. It's in his head. Like he knows all the gags that he's done and always just kind of playing and noodling around for another angle to, to present it. Um, it's just yeah. fascinating. It, it certainly is. Uh, and I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know the nineties as well as I know the sixties, seventies. Uh, and I'm just sort of diving into that material more intently than I have been, but that's, that's brilliant. You know, that, uh, idea, that strip that you're talking about is just a wonderful reinvention of that trope, you know, right. how to do it, you know, 40 years later and still make it fresh and, and unpredictable. And I think one of the amazing things about the span of Schultz's career as a writer is while he had these, you know, uh, niches, these, these tropes that he utilized, these, um, uh, what's a better word for it than trope? I don't like that word. Themes. Themes. Yeah. That he would return. Thank you. (laughs) He would return to, uh, periodically over and over again over the course of many years. He, he, I, I, having read, you know, the entirety of the strip, I only recall like once or twice where a joke might have been repeated in a way that was vaguely similar, you know, to something that had gone right. before. 50 years worth of writing without repeating yourself. I mean, st- and yet within the same kind of patterns, you know, he creates these patterns and he utilizes them uh, to spur his imagination, to give himself a, a set of themes to play off of. But uh, at the same time, every time he does it, he reinvents it somehow. And, and as you're speaking, yeah, you know, the nineties is a great place in which to start to think about, yeah, he's gotta be looking back. I mean, he's had some scares with his health mm-hmm. and, you know, he knows he's, he's vulnerable. And, and I think that one of the things that happens as you grow older is you do be, you know, you, you become very conscious. There's always a certain amount of time left right. and, uh, and you begin to think about those things. And I think he must have been, you know, maybe perhaps not a nostalgic man, but, you know, most of the material for Peanuts comes out of his youth, right? And so right. he's always looking back and pulling more material up. And as so much of his adult life was spent doing the comic strip, then he's mining, you know, that material, working on the comic strip as a subject. Uh, well, the 90s are really fascinating, too, because um, the... Uh, you know, his the relationship with Charlie Brown and Snoopy shifts. It mm-hmm. sort of moves back to being, uh, you know, Snoopy still does his personas and whatnot. But there, there is there is a whole strand of strips where it's like about a boy and his dog. Or you have those moments where yeah. um, Charlie Brown is is sort of in his bed, lying awake at night, and he has those musings. And and it, it and and then there's also a whole spate of strips where we're just hanging out with Spike in the desert, and it has this kind of weird, crazy cat homage vibe to it and um and you kind of like i always think like what what are we what's going on what is what is schultz thinking here that that we're spending all this time with with spike and and yeah. what is he recalling and what is he uh, you know and then you have a whole bunch of strips where rerun is very much in the spotlight and and so i always sort of think you know earlier in our conversation like was he looking at the landscape of the comics then and you think late 90s well Waterson was at his peak and and yeah. 
and getting all this this great um, all these great accolades and and rightly so. But at the same time, like Callan and Hobbes is 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 a direct conduit from Peanuts. So it's like all these new ideas that Watterson had would, I think, he'd be the first to admit. Well, you know, they came from the well of Schultz to a certain degree, and so. Oh, yeah. And then I I wonder like it was Schultz like feeling like as the forgotten cartoonist in a self-imposed exile, so he's just going to hang out in the desert with this weird-looking dog and a cactus. Like I don't I don't know, but it's always fascinating to to wonder. That is really interesting to think about uh, because, you know, uh, yeah, maybe Schultz sees himself in Spike, uh, and you know, Needles, California was you know this place. He only lived there for a year as a kid, right? Right. But, uh, but somehow it had this impact on his psyche. Uh, and, and he returns to it again and again. And yeah, you know, I've, I've often wondered what is this focus on Spike? I I did read somewhere in an interview later on where he mused that perhaps it was a mistake, um, to spend all that time with Spike. But I wondered, you know, why he would say that because he really did seem to do and 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 there is a kind of as you said surreal quality to those comics uh because spike is really speaking to no one else but himself right, right. you know out there i mean except for a, a a cactus tree you know every now and again which he'd interact with and uh you know they're very strange comic strips i think your analysis is about as good an analysis as i can imagine of, of <laughs> You know, the raison d'etre, the, the rationale for those particular strips, because he seems to be drawn to them again yeah. and again. And, and I don't think anybody, you know, this day and age with the digital technology of a Cintiq or an iPad, you can, you can sort of, you know, dash off a strip, I think, a little quicker than 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 maybe if you're using uh, traditional tools. And I feel like uh, Schultz was very deliberate about every line that he wrote every drawing that he made like there's there was a re- you don't he, he spent you know hours at the drawing board and also his strips were big so they took time so i feel like i don't think he yeah casually just decided to spend you know write 400 strips of spike in the desert for without wow. any you know reason um so yeah i i don't know it's but it's one of those things that when i read the strip and and there are other pockets of of the 50 years where you just sort of sit back and think about well, what was he thinking and that's what i love about those those fanographics books i think it's it really opens up the strip in a forward and backward kind of way for us the reader that we can kind of dive into which i think he is a creator but he may i don't know I, I wonder if if he would like that because he was always hypercritical of the last you know batch of strips that he did uh he just sort of did them and moved on to the next so the idea that we can look the whole transom of his of his art career and and think about storylines and where they went um is always i always wonder about that like um it's great for us but what would he thought what would he think well i think you know um i mean uh, of course he'd be working on the next comic strip right so he he'd always be moving forward but i think he was very proud of his work right he was very proud Mm -hmm. of the work he i think as while in interviews with him he's always very humble about the role of the cartoonist and the talents of the cartoonist i also think he took it very very seriously right and, yeah. and i think that he was very proud of the work that he'd done i mean he would say in places that you know he may not be as revered as Picasso among, you know, museums, but he Snoopy and Charlie Brown are better known across the world than anything Picasso ever painted. And and that's, you know, that's very, very true. And, but I also think that attendant with that, with the popularity of those, those characters, I think Schultz also felt that something of the meaning of those characters and the depth of those characters translated to people they weren't just images you know uh to people who revered them they stand for more than that they Mm -hmm. they you know they are parts of our collective psyche you know there's the the wish you know to escape the boundaries of oneself that snoopy you know uh embodies for all of us you know in a lot of ways snoopy's fantasy world is is an outlet for those of us who are sort of you know in a lot of ways, um, surrounded, you know, by the, the accoutrements of civilization were in this late 20th century or early 21st century lifestyle, right. That is regimented. You, you know, you, you have a job, you get up at nine o'clock or, you know, you get up at eight o'clock and go to work at nine and you work till five and you get a two week
week vacation every year and you live in a, you know, a house with two cars or whatever, you know, your kids are in daycare and there's a pattern of life that we, we've set for ourselves, you know, and Snoopy breaks through that and allows us to break through that. And in many ways represents that quality. And I think that people recognize that when they see Snoopy as cuddly, he's also cuddly and, you know, uh, and warm. Right. Um, so I think that, that he was, you know, and then of course, Charlie Brown represents, you know, that other quality, that, that feeling of failure that I think haunts all of us at one point or another. And, uh, uh, where was I going with this? I'm, I'm trying to say that I think Schultz knew what he had done, what he had created. And he knew it was more than just plush toys. Right. You know, um, merchandising. I think he knew that there was a depth to it that was going to withstand time. And that when you looked at the whole, the entirety of it, you were going to have something there that was as vital and as important a work of art as anything produced in the 20th century. And, uh, and that's certainly, I think that's true. And, uh, and I, and you know, I, I think he was aware of it. So, I think he'd probably be very proud of that body of work, even though he probably wouldn't pay any attention to it and he'd just keep working on the next strip. Right. But it's also interesting going back to, you know, that Picasso quote, it reminds me of another interview I remember listening to with that Gary Groth was, was doing with, with Sparky and and it's, it's a audio interview. Um, Uh and I think he transcribed at one point, but there's, there's a moment where, where Groth is saying exactly what you're saying about like, the breadth of the work and and what these characters mean and like he, and he's trying to ask uh he's he's pushing at schultz to to sort of acknowledge that and sparky is very reticent that so you can sort of hear in in his voice this um this push and pull of like yeah i've i've done i've accomplished this great feat and people in japan know who snoopy and charlie brown is and but at the same time he's he's wrestling with well it's just a comic strip it's just this commercial you know, piece of art and, and like not wanting to ignore, not wanting to embrace the fact that it is art. Like it's the genre is comic strips, but it's a great piece of art. And, and I think, you know, that internal struggle that, that Sparky had is something we all cartoonists sort of fight with. It's sort of like, well, we're, we're, you know, we're drawing these funny characters on, on paper, but, um, and they mean so much to us and hopefully to a reader who enjoys those characters, but it's sort of like, it's not, it's not an N.C. Wyeth. It's not a Picasso. It's not like a, uh, a Calder sculpt, you know, sculpture. It's just like it's just drawing these funny pictures on paper. Um, and I think that's, you know, in this country at least, that's one of the 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 um, the problems of of how comic strip art is is um, uh, perceived because you don't get that attitude in Europe or or in Japan. Like comics, comics, it's the ninth art. It's it's, it's it stands on its own. Yeah. Uh, uh, but for some reason in this country, we just can't like grapple with, with that. Um, it's just sort of, you know, put on newsprint and thrown out and moved on to the next day. Yeah. It's very, it's, it's a, it's an odd kind of conundrum. Uh, at the one time we revere great cartoon characters and, and want them around us and, you know, want to decorate our homes with plush toys and, and, you know, blankets and sheets from, you know, peanuts or, or Garfield or whomever, or we buy our kids these things. But yeah, we do tend to relegate comics to this, uh, world of children's entertainment and dismissible entertainment. And I think that's a holdover in a lot of ways from, Oh, you know, the 1950s and Wortham and his approach to uh, comic books and all of that stuff, you know, that ended up in comic books for the next 15 years or so, you know, uh, as a children's medium and being relegated to to children's, uh, the idea of children's entertainment. But it is, it is strange. The situation that the cartoonist finds himself in, but there's a closeness to the audience and immediacy uh, with the audience that transcends, you know, the the kind of um, what's the word museum bound quality of high art. And I, mm. I, I'm 
you know, I've worked in a university setting for a long time and, and I worked, I did, you know, for a long time I worked as within the realm of fine art, quote unquote, fine art, which is something I, you know, I rail against too. But anyway, there are these divisions that we, they're artificial divisions, right? That we build up around these art forms. We, you know, there's the museum trajectory, museum bound, um, art world, you know, the gallery world, uh, where cartoons and comics for many, many years have been relegated to the outside and certainly you know uh except for people like robert crumb or chris ware you know uh where we identify okay this is high art they can be associated with gallery artists right uh the vast majority of us uh you know are working outside of that there's a barrier there there's a wall there and for us as cartoon you know I think there's resentment on the part of some cartoonists and there's an attitude on the part of the art world. And you know, those are artificial barriers, you know, I think is as Linus often says 500 years from now, who's going to care who will know the difference. And, and I think that's, that's really true. You know, when we look back at, at ancient art, uh, whether we, you know, we're looking at pottery and, and, you know, Greek vases and urns and, and the painting of the pottery, uh, you know, maybe it was just a decorative object that was used in the household, you know, at that time Well, we revere those things now. Right. And, uh, you know, so at some point or another, uh, as cultural production, you know, the impact, say, of comic strips upon the civilization and the culture has really been far greater than that of, say, you know, well, I can't really say that. But, you know, I mean, in terms of the immediacy of its impact, it's been far greater than, say, you know, uh, uh, some of the, the work that's come out of, you know, the world of high art that I revere, uh, but, you know, and still love. But, um you know, Schultz is known by everybody and it's right. impacted everybody. Whereas say Ellsworth Kelly's work is there's a rarefied few who really get into Ellsworth Kelly and, and, or Jasper Johns and know what that stuff is about. Um, although I well, think and the other, the other thing I would just say on that, that point, I don't, I think those, those hierarchies are imposed by whoever the, the body is that, that is, you know, putting up those, those gatekeepers. Barriers. Yeah. The gatekeepers, so to speak, because the artists themselves, would never, um, I think, no. uh, partition things. Well, and that's the other thing. I was just thinking about Picasso, and I remember visiting, um, I think it was the Museum in Paris ages ago, and the, and the way it's set up, it's you sort of go, I think, from the bottom floor up to the top, and you and you go through Picasso's life and how he, and the art that he was creating through that. And so, you know, the early stuff is very representational, and, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, beautiful oil paintings, and, and, and um, and then it starts to get more and more abstract and cartoony as you move up. And I remember just seeing, like, on the top level, this little painting he did of an owl. And it's a cartoon. And it's like, yeah. it's, yeah, I mean, it's sort of that was a great of, cartoonist. yeah, stripping away. And and I also remember going to a, this, this is one of those childhood memories that kind of, you know, always kind of comes back. But uh, it was the first time I read, I think it was 12, I was reading... Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. It was a graphic novel, and and I was just falling in love with it. And I was reading in the car, and our family was going to an exhibit. This was in uh, of um, uh, I think it was like Toulouse Lautrec, and and um, and so we're in the car, and I'm sort of battling with my dad because he just he just he just wants me to stop reading this graphic novel so we can get to the exhibit and enjoy it. And so I'm begrudgingly going through this exhibit, looking at at this art, and. On the wall, I'm, I'm looking at Toulouse Lautrec, and I'm and I'm looking. Oh my gosh, this this is what Chuck Jones was drawing when he was doing those Pepe Le Pew cartoons. Like, those are those images of those those crazy French people he would draw and 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 animate. And and suddenly, like between reading, like my mind being exploded by reading this great graphic novel from Frank Miller, and then thinking of the Chuck Jones, and then the Toulouse Lautrec. Like it all just kind of like came together. I'm like, oh, this is all the same. And it was just. Um, uh, one of those, you know, revelations you have as a young kid that kind of sticks with you. Yeah, there's a, and and I think you're right as artists. And and this is the important point. It's that artists really don't see those barriers. Artists work across those barriers. They grab from whatever, you know, whatever material piques their interest at the moment and spurs them on. And, And you can look at some of those Picasso etchings, you know, from later in his life. And man, those are just great illustrations, great cartoons. Picasso was a great draftsman. Mm-hmm. 
but he was also, you know, very capable of doing these very loose and very free uh, drawings that really, you know, come out of the world of the cartoon, you know, or George Gross or any of those people in that world. They're, they're, you know, they're not differentiating between what they're doing and say, except maybe, you know, in terms of notoriety or in terms of, you know, economic value. But, right. you know, between what they're doing and what a New Yorker cartoonist is doing or what Charles Schultz is doing, uh, there's a there's a connection there. And, you know, artists are we're in dialogue with one another across all those those boundaries and we hand things off to one another. And that's why, you know, you know, Picasso could look at somebody like, you know, Harriman and see the quality there when millions of other people, you know, saw barriers. And right. Picasso and Brock were like, well, you know, this guy's great. This stuff is hilarious and it's really weird and and it's surreal. And I, you know, I can take something from this and put it into my own work. And, and the same is true, you know, in reciprocal fashion. You can look at, at uh, Toulouse-Lautrec or you know, who's working, by the way, in a popular, you know, medium, he's working in the art of the poster, mm-hmm. right? um, which is again, you know, mass media, which I, you know, I've always thought mass media was the true art form of, of, you know, America, you know, in a oh, lot interesting. of interesting. Yeah. Uh, that, that the, the true art form was, was through, you know, almost all the great painters from the early 20th century, the Ashcan school and all those guys, they all came out of illustration. They all came out of illustrating for magazines and newspapers in the late 19th century, early 20th century. A lot of them, um, you know, um, made a living, you know, illustrating for, for newspapers. So in a lot of ways that really, you know, vaudeville as well as, you know, print publication, the, the, you know, the real art of America has always been in that which we tend to dis- disparage and disregard, you know, ephemeral mm-hmm. away. Later on, we realize it's got value, but our, you know, what's going to be more important than comics and movies, you know, uh, when we look back at the 20th century and, and, right. uh, and rock and roll, you know, uh, I mean, those are the things that are going to resonate and, um, you know, it's the connections between those that are really important. But I think, you know, Artists just don't see that they, they work across those boundaries. And, uh, um, that's, that's, what's really important that, that we're all in dialogue and, uh, those, those barriers, sh- you know, just serve really, you know, the interests of the powerful as you, as, as it were, as opposed to serving artists. So there you have it. Part one of our multi-part interview or discussion with Lex Fajardo, senior editor at Schultz Studio in Santa Rosa, California. And that is just the tip of the iceberg because our next episode is an uh, extra length, extra extended, giant size issue uh, wherein Lex and I sit down and continue our, our talk and get deep into what happens at Schultz Studio every day. What do they do? How do these decisions about t-shirts and and pajamas and and postcards and stationery and books get made that's what we get into among other things and so this discussion goes on and and for me that was something that was a world i had had no entry into and no understanding of beforehand but uh we have uh a really great conversation talking about what goes on at Schultz Studio every day, and uh, I think you'll find it as fascinating as I did. So I want to get that out to you right away, and so I think you'll find it in your feed next week, so be looking for it, okay? Uh, Part two of my discussion with Lex Fajardo. And this is just the beginning, because I think Lex has so much to offer. Boy, he's such an interesting guy to talk to, so articulate, so smart, uh, really with great observations and insight into the work of Charles Schultz, and uh, I can't think of anybody better, really, to be to be working at some place like Schultz Studio, some, except somebody as sensitive to to Schultz's work as Lex is, clearly is. And so, I'm hoping that uh, you know not only will we have a great series here, but um, very shortly, Lex and I are going to continue the conversation, talk about his work with Kid Beowulf, which is a terrific series. If you haven't read it, you can. Get a taste of it at GoComics.com, but you can also check it out at KidBeowulf.com. That's K-I-D-B-E-O-W-U-L-F.com. Uh, you can pick up his graphic novels anywhere that good books are sold, published by Andrews McMeal, and they will not disappoint. They are terrific. Lex has got a vibrant style of cartooning, and uh, he's a wonderful storyteller. So uh, very different from, from Schultz's work and his work there, but... Uh, but also 
Uh, very, very satisfying, very exciting, uh, wonderful stories. I just finished The Rise of El Cid, his latest book, and I highly recommend it. So uh, check that out, okay? Uh, be on the lookout for our next episode because that's going to be up there next week, I promise you. And um, uh, so thanks for coming by. Thanks for listening. Uh, please be sure to give us a rating at uh, wherever you're listening your to your podcasts Uh, if you give us that five stars and that little write-up it really helps draw people there and please share this with uh you know whomever your friends are on social media that really helps too i want to get this out to as many people as possible you know love of charles schultz love of peanuts i want to spread the word uh and uh, share it as much as possible especially when you know we've got such interesting people to talk to like lex and uh such a, a terrific conversation It's really something that I think all comics lovers would probably enjoy. So please share it and um, help us get the word out. As usual, hug a warm puppy. I'll be seeing you very quickly next week, okay? So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye for now.